There's an element of the human condition that we haven't discussed yet, and that is the burden of history. We're expected to contextualize our existence within the conceptual frameworks that came before us, and rarely are we given the opportunity to create a wholly new, socially recognized identity for ourselves. We may have complex religious or political beliefs, but we're limited to the vocabulary that the past has yielded us. We may not wish to feel victimized, and yet history tells us we're oppressed. We may resent having to choose sides that feel antiquated and harmfully dualistic, and yet the vestigial roots of tribalism are still so often what determine our sense of belonging. And so we're forced to contend with these social and cultural facets of existence that predate us, but may not be serving us. And we're burdened with the choice to either assent or dissent. Joining us for this conversation is Adam Reed. He's a teacher of history, a student of Latin American studies, and the principal songwriter for his band, Adam Reed and the Inbetweens. With his help, we were able to sort through some of the complexities of this topic like whether we have a responsibility to that which came before us, and what we're holding space for when we examine the present through the lens of the past. All of the music cues you'll hear during this episode are from Adam's catalog, which we'll provide links for in the show notes. Enjoy the show. I feel like a lot of what I do with my students is grappling with sort of the weight of the past, how it's continuing to shape our lives to this day. So I'm thinking about this idea of the burden of history, and I think there is a burden that comes with it in a certain sense. Um, And I think there's also possibility for liberation that comes with like an understanding of it as well. So like when we talk about the, like the concept of a burden of history, I think about the social constructs that have been created through history, right? So for instance, the one that like we're talking about most in my class is racism and white supremacy, right? Like Mm -hmm. we're still grappling with that to this day um, and we're still feeling the weight of it. But also it's something that was constructed by human beings. So we have this moment in history where white Europeans see an opportunity to create massive amounts of wealth through the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. And they create the concept of race to support this, right? To justify it. And we're still grappling with those social constructions, with that social construction of race that they created in this moment of history where they decide, okay, white people are superior than all other people, and especially in this moment, black Africans, right? Mm-hmm. So, like now in 2021, we're still grappling with like a burden of this moment, but it's it wasn't like a predetermined thing. It's this, it's this moment in which human beings made certain choices that led to certain outcomes that we're now trying to undo. So I guess that's sort of the way I conceptualize seeing burdens coming from history, historical moments. I'm not sure if that's the way you're, you're thinking about it or not though. And I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Well, I'm not. So briefly, I'll give the example of how I stumbled upon this. I'm not necessarily thinking of it in a specific way, but the inception of this thought for me was, why do I have to call myself either a religious person or an atheist person? Because that only that terminology only exists in the context of what has been established in history, but does that mean that it needs to exist in the present moment? 
And does that mean that it needs to exist for all individuals who don't necessarily subscribe to any particular nomenclature pertaining to religion or the history of religion or any type of theology? So that's where my head was at when I first was thinking about this. But what you're saying is probably the more pertinent to the conversation, which is that historically, oppression has been, you know, one of the main facets of the human condition that is not necessarily organic to mankind, but has become organic to mankind. So I think that's the most actionable facet of this concept. Whereas what, what I was talking about before is a little bit more passive. But I think, I, I mean, I see them as related as well, because I mean, as someone who, who doesn't ascribe to any particular religion, I also see religions as social constructs, right? Sure. So again, historically, like religions have been created either to create moral and ethical systems or to provide explanations for things that were difficult to understand. And so we have these things that are socially constructed. And then I think you're, I mean, your question is interesting, right? Like, do we, is there a moment where we break from that and stop like ascribing to these concepts or talking, talking outside of them versus mm -hmm. allowing them to continue to permeate in our society. And I think it, it probably differs depending on what we're talking about. But once those things have been constructed, I think the weight of them continues to sort of shape the world we live in. Right. So mm -hmm. like once a social construction is created and has permeated through a society, it's difficult for us to talk about ourselves as disconnected from those things, because in some way or another, I think they're shaping the reality that we're living in today. Yeah. So like with religion, we're living in a society in which like we have like a government and, and government officials that continue to ascribe to this religion in very real ways that affect people's like well-beings, their, you know, their conditions. And it becomes really difficult to break ourselves from it. But I, you know, as I think about these big topics, what is interesting about history as well is that when you dig deep enough into it or when you have a strong enough understanding of it, it, it also becomes liberatory from these, these social constructs, right? Because for race, for example, if you look at history and you actually see the construction of race, you can see this mo these moments in which race hasn't existed in the way that like we understand it today showing that actually okay this was man-made mm -hmm. this wasn't something that always has been therefore it isn't something that always has to be right right and i think religion is similar like if you are saying okay well multiple religions have existed in multiple ways throughout human history or we've seen moments in which religion didn't exist at least in the ways that we understand it today it gives us this understanding that okay also this is not the way that it has to be, that it had to be, or that it may be in the future, right? So there's like, we're tied to it in some ways, but also like a deeper understanding of history allows us to potentially break from it and imagine alternatives moving forward. I like that. And and I certainly, I'm not, I'm not speaking as a person who wants to abolish religion. Um, I'm just speaking as a person who kind of resents needing to contextualize my beliefs, my moral beliefs within the fact that there's a historical precedent for religion being the way that one would contextualize their moral beliefs. Yeah. And I think, I think that for anyone living with an identity that falls outside of the 
dominant or powerful identity within like a social construct, right? Yeah. It's my understanding that that is, that is to some degree the experience, right? Like if you're living in this world as a person of color in a world where whiteness is dominant, you're going to resent that power structure and having to like justify your existence. If you're a woman living in like a patriarchal society, you're going to resent the fact that you have to prove your worth in ways that men don't have to think about. Right. Um, Right. Just like as an atheist, like, which, you know, was one of, I think the first identities that I really sort of grappled with, uh, you know, within my own identity as a young person and finding resentment, like growing up in a like dominantly Christian society in the South. Right. Like also I felt resentful being like, well, why is this something that I have to justify or that I have to like prove that I'm, I'm still an ethical human and moral human being just because I don't ascribe to Christianity. So I think there are like connections across these things, right? That these social constructs weigh on different identities, but with some, some overlaps in the way that it plays out or the way, the way it causes people to think and feel. How do you think you account for like the intergenerational information loss that can happen sometimes? Because like talking about like when we study historical contexts and paradigms and things within the context of our own existence, how do we communicate that to future generations or future students or whatever? Because that that seems to be a, a constant issue for me whenever I encounter stuff like this or read about things like this, that we reason our way to the same general points each time any topic like race or disparity and whatever are studied. And we kind of rehash the same handful of issues. And we have been like Joel and I were talking about the, uh, the Tao Te Ching the other day. And one of the most striking things that I found when I read that for the first time was that they were talking about the exact same stuff that we all see in like self-help blogs and things now. So there's something that's stopping whatever enlightenment or knowledge or just understanding or compassion from trickling down through the ages. And I've always been kind of perplexed by that because it seems like it goes hand in hand with studying and understanding our history in these ways. Mm. But there's some sort of thing that seems to get recycled each time. And I don't know if it's that every generation wants their shot at like having the same adventure that they were promised or that they were taught, or if we're all just (laughs) fundamentally dumb (laughs) and we keep falling for the same tricks. (laughs) But it's yeah. something every time there's someone talks about like the benefits and the, the cons of studying history, this is the thing that always occurs to me is like, well, who cares if we're studying history or we're studying the present or we're anticipating the future if we keep falling for the same stuff? Yeah, it's a big question. And as someone like who is deeply committed to like social justice through learning from the past, like mm-hmm. I want to believe that while change looks like very, very minimal, that things are changing, right? That like, we are seeing new language. And even just within, you know, my adulthood, the way that we have begun to talk like as a society about some of these larger issues, like we have more language to understand certain aspects of identity, we have more language to understand certain aspects of oppression. And like, we're seeing also a resurgence of 
more of like a radical left that's also like thinking about economic equality in ways that like we haven't at least for hundreds of years. But I think part of the problem is that like history itself is kind of a battleground that like mm-hmm. we're fighting over the information that people are getting and how they're thinking about that information. And like our public school system is a, a perfect example of that, right? Like mm-hmm. we have a certain curriculum that we're supposed to teach um, and that gets shifted, but it's it's largely created by a state that has like certain goals in mind. And part of those goals are like, those goals are rarely liberatory. Those goals are usually more like, how do we teach nationalism, right? How do we teach Mm -hmm. students to appreciate the nation or the systems we've created? How do we teach students to exist within those systems? Like, and even if it's like, how do we teach them to do it responsibly in a way that's geared towards justice? It's usually not, it's usually not framed as how do we teach or study history or any, you know, any subject with the goal of like creating a more liberatory society, one that's actually founded on like full egalitarianism or like dismantling the things that aren't working, right? It's usually about reform and not revolution. Yeah. And so, and so if you're only, you know, if you're only ever teaching in that framework, you're never, you're never giving people the actual tools that they need to create the kind of change that I think we're talking about. Right. So yeah, usually people have to seek that out themselves, Yeah, which, you know, is, so it's, it's happening only for those people who already are like clearly on a path that's committed to that kind of change rather than for the average person who maybe isn't, you know, hasn't come to that, that framework on their own. Mm. That seems to be a really tricky Tricky thing. We've talked about this on, I don't remember what episode it was, but we were talking about education to some extent and sort of suggesting that like a lot of change isn't going to be fully possible until it's able to trickle all the way down from, you know, whatever kind of university common room it was contrived in to like the coal mines of West wherever. Like it doesn't seem like a lot of things will be universally possible, like, which isn't to say that change can't happen or that progress can't happen or different conversations can't happen because they absolutely are. And it's incredibly heartening to see, but it seems like the types of advancements that everybody's yearning for a little bit, those are the ones that need to be made more palatable across a lot of different sectors of society and, and probably not even just Western society, but just crossing a lot of different cultural boundaries that it seems very difficult to cross. And, uh, yeah. That's where I feel like it connects back to the whole human condition idea for me. It's like, it seems like a lot of historical knowledge, it's, it's like they're like little markers for like, this is how we were dealing with this issue then. And this is how we're dealing with this issue then. But they're the same like six or seven issues. They're all the same, like we're trying to establish and maintain hegemony. We're trying to reason with the afterlife. We're trying to justify getting out of bed and dealing with a cascade of bullshit every morning. Like, it's all kind of the same, very human stuff. And I'd be really interested to see if that was ever possible to work into these discussions of history more, mm. and more in a more present sense. Cause I love learning about this, this kind of stuff, but I find that it, it, I have to go elsewhere for that type of inquiry, you know, like for the real kind of Socratic edge to it that you don't typically get when it's laid out as facts. And I, I wish it were more possible to overlay those two things. Yeah. And like Adam was saying, like, who's laying it out as facts for you, you know? <laughs> yeah. And if you're being taught how to exist in a nationalist way, if you're being mm. taught how to exist within hegemony and you're being taught basically radical, radical acceptance of stasis, 
so that you can serve what has come before you and what has been established for you to exist within. Yeah. Then you have to question who is teaching you to live that way and who is teaching you to serve those things. And is it serving them more than it's serving you? Yeah. And it's like so many other topics we've had on here that like, <laughs> I completely get why people don't want to go there. You know, like it yeah. makes so much sense. That's an awful place to exist sometimes. But like, that seems like it would be the key to properly understanding all of our triumphs and mishaps and things that have come before us is understanding who's telling you stuff, what they're telling you, what it means to you, and how you're going to process it and, and move it forward. Because that seems like the only way to kind of process a lot of these tidbits that you'll collect over the years. It's just, you know, kind of like the analytical techniques mm -hmm. that I feel like are taken for granted very easily. Yeah, it, it's it's really interesting. I mean, obviously, like my frame is coming from like being in public education and seeing in some ways we're moving towards like a more critical and inquiry based way of of teaching history. Like we're moving away from teaching history as just a series of facts, which I think is like number one, like the most important thing we have to do. Right. That yeah. it's it's not one narrative. In fact, there's multiple narratives and that narrative looks completely different depending on like whose point of view you're looking from, right? Which is like one of the things that is being actually pushed in history classes, at least to some degree. And I think it differs depending on what district you're in and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, my school is relatively progressive and has like a huge uh, push to incorporate social justice into our curriculum and stuff like that. So it's yeah. it's very easy for me to be like, you know, we're focusing on multiple perspectives, thinking about whose agenda is being served by certain moments, things like that. And I think, yeah, I that's, think cool. that's, that's huge. Another thing that they're doing too is they're like schools are as a whole pushing towards certain reading skills that are actually like rooted in being under able to understand complex text right so that students are making meaning of things themselves and I think that like generally is really good but and I was just talking with another teacher about this yesterday um, and there's like still a there's still at least a piece that's missing and it's that piece that like where you're going, you're going further and that like, you're collectively doing the work of like, reimagining, right? Like, I feel like that's always where we get stuck. And that's where we like find ourselves like, repeating the same things over and over as we get to this place where we can, maybe even up to the point where we can criticize certain systems, but not beyond to the fact that we're like, imagining and then also learning the skills to like, create something new. Um, and I think that's where we're starting to see like ethnic studies programs, for instance, which Holyoke, Massachusetts has one. It's like one of the only places I know of on the East Coast where it's like district wide and they're teaching students the um, practice of praxis, which is like being able to identify problems, consider the root causes of those problems, develop and put into place actual solutions for those problems and then like nice. evaluate how successful they were right so that like yeah i like that That's so cool. that they're like actually going through like it's a completely different kind of learning you know social studies and learning history because you're you're learning history as a tool not just as a narrative right mm -hmm. um yeah that's awesome and these are the these are the things this is where i feel like 
were not like properly. And I, I, this, I think this is maybe a funny, funny word to use, but like weaponizing like social studies and history in a way that's aimed at like dismantling and destroying those systems that aren't working for us or like those cycles that we're getting stuck in. Yeah. That sounds like awesome to me. That sounds like the exact direction I should have always been going in, you know, it's just, cause that's, I mean, if nothing else, history is just information. It's just an enormous wealth of information. And if you don't do anything with it, it's inert. It's like, what is it ever going to do? So I like that, that kind of, that disconnect is finally being addressed. Cause that's something I've always found really frustrating with, even with a lot of like, a lot of social justice and social justice adjacent topics. I feel like when they get too philosophical and when they get too kind of like they're treading water almost like they just, there's so much to take in. Like there's so many theories, there's so many philosophies and angles and, and honestly just people and events to get your head around that it can be very easy to think that once you've done that to whatever extent you're comfortable with that you've done it. And in reality, it's like, no, you have just reached the starting line. Now you actually have to do something. And that's exciting to me, you know, when, when you realize that, yeah, you're, you're well-armed now, like now you can go out the world and, and put things into place. And that, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's cool that that's heading that way. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's an uphill battle. I mean, like ethnic studies programs and that approach to it, I know like got big in the sixties. Uh, they're, they're doing a lot with it out in California right now too. And some other areas out West, but like, I know like California, they just signed some law, like saying, okay, we're going to have all public school students, if I'm not mistaken, like take one ethnic studies course, like during the public school Hmm. education, but over the struggles of even getting that, like, we're going to have them do like one course or like one year of it. It's been, it's like been so watered down that like actual ethnic studies teachers and professors are like coming out and saying, this isn't actually ethnic studies anymore. It's like actually not doing that thing, like the, the main thing that this is supposed to do. So it's, it is a struggle, but it's also hopeful because we're seeing it starting to emerge more and more. And it's, you think about like math or sciences or studies like that, where you can like say, okay, there's a concrete reason you learn science that you go on and you do these things you use it to do concrete things. And, um, I mean, it's kind of funny when you think about how history and social studies and like even like philosophy and all the all these things in the liberal arts, we like take for granted that they're actually designed to do something for us. Like we have them and we learn them to do concrete things in our world and make it like a better place, just like science is designed to help us make our world a better place or math is designed to help us, you know, create new technologies, et cetera, and make the world a better place. They're all they're all tools. and, And we. I think that gets lost a lot with especially like the liberal arts and social studies, et cetera. Yeah. And, and especially how, like, you know, what I began this conversation with was you know, the kind of the idea of conceptual history, you know, just, just in terms of what has come before. And now we're talking about academic history being an existential threat to certain peoples and certain cultures, you know, if it's not taught the right way if it's not taught as a tool and if it's only taught as a narrative that favors one culture over another or favors, you know, the, the victors or the oppressors, however that is defined. I I think that's a perfect like summation of it, that it is like, it can either be really dangerous or like really liberatory, right? Like it has the potential for both. And I've seen it like do so much, so much damage in the sense that like, the ways like I like I had students this week analyzing a schoolhouse rock video 
which mm-hmm. like they're in high school. So they're able to like, you know, they're really able to pick it apart because it's made for younger kids. But this was something, you know, I was telling them I was taught this when I was in school. I watched teachers use this video like in their classrooms a few years ago when I was training to become a teacher myself as like an appropriate narrative, but it's the one about manifest destiny. And I'm like, Mm. you know, we've gone through part of the year now and I'm asking them, I'm like, what do you notice in this video? What are some of the problems you see in this video? And they're, they're, you know, immediately like they've erased indigenous people from the story of us expanded (laughs) westward expansion. Like there were, there was one indigenous person in it. They talk about it being peaceful. I know they were fighting. I know there were (laughs) conflicts like there, you know, so like it doesn't, it doesn't take all that much to get people to that place where they're like, wait, this is only one narrative and it's clearly problematic, but it was taught, you know, for me and previous generations, this was taught as fact. And what you get out of that is whiteness is inherently good. Like this was, you know, and like the religion that's tied into this video too. Like I had kids saying, oh, they said God like six times. It makes it seem like yeah, it was like God's plan for them to expand the country, you know, and and if you're taking that as fact, it's really dangerous because you accept that like whiteness, white expansion, like colonialism has been ordained by some higher power. Yeah. And that's and then you move through the world with that, like that understanding of, of the world that you live in. It's that's <sighs> just seems incredibly dangerous. And, you know, when we wonder why there are white supremacists like all over the place in the country right now it's because we see people who are feeling finally threatened that that narrative is being shattered you know yeah and also because clearly that you know if they watched a video like that when they were young before they had heard any of the alternative narratives then they would have been kind of indoctrinated into that idea of white nationalism before they had any other information to measure it against Exactly. And and not given the skills to see history in this more complex way so that they're not willing to challenge that. I mean, also, of course, like to challenge that would be to challenge their own power within the system that these these historical narratives have helped to prop up. Right. So it's like they can just be really, really dangerous. Well, there's a cool dichotomy with that, too, I think, where you're understanding why it's dangerous to be indoctrinated in these ways, but also by picking apart how these mechanisms work and how these, um, just these previous ways of educating kids, especially work, there's kind of that, like, like that Sun Tzu style of, um, empathy, you know, where you're sort of getting to know your enemy and and having a respect for your enemy in that way. It's like, if you want to dismantle white supremacists, you have to understand that you are attacking everything that they believe this world to be and everything that they hold dearly and, and, hold higher than themselves the same way that you hold better things higher for yourself, you know? So it's like, I think it's really important to learn about the past that way as well, where you're, you have a healthy respect for the fact that you're about to kick in somebody's existential front door and they're not just going to sit there. You know, you have to like kind of know what you're attacking and know where you're hitting this person so that you can understand, like they are going to freak the fuck out the closer you get so if you really want to cause change in the world, you've got to like batten down the hatches at the right times or or be compassionate at the right times, like learn kind of the judo of it a little bit, which takes a thorough understanding of why they think this makes sense. And so I think it's really cool to almost reverse engineer some of these things, like take a video like that and see like, why did this, why was this the move? Why was this important mm. to people? 
to like get this message across and a lot can be learned even from that from that kind of even just the subtext of it I, yeah i think it just helps them make a lot of sense out of like the world that they're seeing right now and then also like that point you're making like learning how to navigate like what are the moves we make and when do we make these moves that's the piece that it's like it's so hard as an educator in this system and even like even knowing that's where i want to get you to it's it feels mm. like such a challenge um and it's and i think in part too because it's so different than the way i was taught right but how do i take you from like understanding the material to now like developing concrete actions with it and starting to break down those social constructs that like you know when we started talking about this we we're feeling like that that burden of history feeling trapped by some of these things like how do we now teach kids to actually dismantle them in a way that like we are no longer burdened by them, at least in, you know, yeah. to the degree that we are now, right? Like, how do we start chipping away at that? And that was going to be my next question for you is, in the public school system, are you seeing kids being taught that they do have the agency to be the enactors of change? Yeah, I mean, I've, going into that, a lot of people go in hoping that they're going to be able to do some sort of good in that system, which is also complicated. I mean, there's, it's, you know, it's just a really complicated system to be a part of, but I think most people who have been teaching the kids that I've worked with at least want change for these kids, want their lives to be better and have tried to encourage them like, yes, you can make change. But even within that, there's sort of the reformist change versus the like, we need radical revolutionary change. And I think most people fall in the reformist and like, let's enact change. Here's how you like write to your Congress people, or here's how you do this versus like, let's study like the Black Panthers and the Young Lords and see about how they use like enacted direct action and like actually went about taking control of their own communities in really powerful ways, right? And within the ethnic studies program at Holyoke, it actually is that sort of latter version of like, let's talk about the Black Panthers, let's talk about the Young Lords, let's talk about revolutionaries, let's understand like terminology like hegemony and social constructs and things like that. And they're, they're doing that hard work and they're using praxis, right? So they are actually having kids develop their own plans of action, put it in place, and like they're making changes in their schools and their communities and stuff. But as a whole, I think that last piece of it is what's mostly missing, right? Like being able to communicate to kids like there are problems in the systems you have some agency but not getting to that place of like let's let you experiment with that agency let's like be someone there working in solidarity with you as we try to change the systems that are not good for you they're not good for me they're not good for any of us right I was on a conference call earlier with this group that I'm a part of when we meet on Sundays. We were talking about change and impermanence and, you know, what we can do to react to change when it is out of our control. And then when is change in our control? And I think a lot of the time, how we're conditioned to see change that is in our control is that like, well, we live within a capitalist system. We can create a new product. Or like we can start a company that does things differently 
or, you know, we can engage with that system of living and that economic system to enact change ourselves. But is that real change? Is that social change? Is that even personal change? Is that even change that helps everything to grow and evolve in the direction that it should? You know, and so I think knowing how to approach systemic change by studying how it has been successful or even how it has been attempted in the past, like you're saying, is, you know, yeah, and then, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, like that's one of the most beautiful things about studying history is like not only learning about the oppression, but like learning about these like beautiful moments of hope. And I think, you know, we live in a hyper-individualist society. And so I think those solutions that you're talking about and the ones like I was mentioning, like these little things, like these little reformist moves, we're taught to do that because you're taught this narrative of what can I do as one person? Well, here's something I can do as one person rather than like, let's look at what people did in a particular strike when suddenly we decided we're not one person, we're a bunch of people together who are doing something collectively, acting in solidarity, you know, and suddenly have way more power to make way more change. So whether it's like strikes from the turn of the 20th century, right, where um, labor in the United States and around the world was highly militant and like really informed by ideas like anarchism, right, and anti-capitalism, you see these moments of hope or like yeah. moments like the Spanish Civil War where things kind of broke down and people are like, let's build something new in its place that's radically different or Chiapas, Mexico, where they, you know, created an autonomous community founded on like one of the most vibrant forms of democracy that has existed, you know, that I know of in this world. Um, mm. You see these moments where people did that together and, and looking at that, I think creates like that counterpoint of hope too, right? Like where it's like, we see what's wrong. We, we're starting to understand these problems by studying oppression. We start to understand some possible, like, actual strategies for, for creating change by, by studying these moments of hope as well. Is there ever an emphasis, too, on, on deviating from the, like, the capital O oppression or, you know, things like that, you know, kind of getting into the, the feelings that those people would feel? Because I could see a... Learning about subjects like that, especially when it's revolutionaries or even when it's the other end of that spectrum and it's things that are so abjectly evil that you you can't get your head around it in a day-to-day -day sense. Like there's so many things about those subjects that, that are kind of alienating and just extremely hard to grasp. And I, I found that a lot growing up, that, you know, it's just hard to imagine like yourself being a revolutionary or causing any actual social change because it seems like there's these people like Nelson Mandela type people who are capable of sitting still for 20 years and like penning these beautiful works and then coming out completely whole and running a country like when you look at it zoomed out it looks impossible for the average kid to just sort of grow into you know but it's like that's kind of how a lot of these guys seem to have felt as well when you read retrospective accounts of their lives or, or their autobiographies or anything like that. And they always had that phase of like, I don't know, I just kind of made it work. And then all of a sudden here I am. And like, I feel like sometimes appealing to the universality of some of these, these movements, like take like a, you know, a labor movement or something, just the fact that these were people that were just getting the shit kicked out of them all the time. Like they were making no money. They were working horrible hours. People were dying at their places of employment. Like, if you can make those make people feel those feelings and say, all right, now this built up for this long and it's like this was the step that they took and then this step led to this step, it can maybe make it seem a lot more 
tangible. Because actually, on the other end of that, um, did you guys realize Bukowski was in the <laughs> the Hitler Youth? What? Just found that out recently. <laughs> I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, Bukowski wrote an interesting um, account of why he joined the Hitler Youth when he was because he lived in Germany when he was a kid, and okay. uh, he's by no means a Nazi. Like the Bukowski that we all know is by no means a Nazi, but he wrote a really interesting account of like. This is why it was appealing. I was a nobody kid. I had no future. I was lonely. And these guys were good at suckering in kids who were in this this position in life. Mm. And I found it, like, it was kind of powerful and kind of interesting to be, because you hear like Nazi and you think no one that I know and I would never be a Nazi. Like, how does someone get like, you think it's congenital or something, but it isn't, you know? It's like all of these people built themselves from basic human feelings. And so did revolutionaries and so did political figures and is that becoming any more accessible now the way that these things are being taught yeah that's a good question i mean i definitely like try to and i think i think a lot of people who are who are thinking about history in these ways try to incorporate like empathy and human emotion into like our understanding right of of why these things are happening but on a on a bigger scale i think what you're talking about i've read a couple articles recently that have have made the argument that like what you're talking about with the Hitler youth, right? Is that more than being like, we want to, we want to capture people into this movement solely on like these really awful, like horrible ideas that the Nazis were all about. It was like about like capturing something else about like the human experience. Like we've built in human connection and an appeal to your emotions in certain ways that are giving you something positive out of this movement. Right. Yeah. And the articles I'd read were making essentially the argument that that's what we're seeing in the modern, like far right as well. Like all the people who like went batshit crazy for Trump and like are like joining like white supremacy groups or even even aren't that far right, but are like tuning into Fox News and getting something out of like people like Tucker Carlson who are repeating these white supremacy talking points like they're getting something emotional out of it that's keeping them tied to it that's bringing them in and it's it's beyond the fact of what they're talking it's not it's not the facts yeah. that they're talking about it's not just that it's this emotional connection that the right is making with its with its base right and yeah. that the argument is that that's been missing from the left right that like yeah. we're coming at this with like here's logical rational thought but we're not making the emotional appeals or creating the structures and systems that are giving people like the human connection that they need, or, you know, the like positive emotional experiences they need as well in order to mobilize people around these ideas of radical, like egalitarian change. Right. So that that is actually like, I've read that as a critique of what is missing from what we're trying to do. Mm. Um, mm. like in a, in a big picture sense in terms of creating a, a radically different and more egalitarian, more inclusive society. So. It makes sense too, because I mean, that's why I feel like it's important to understand these things. Cause like, again, like the alt-right, for example, they're good at it, like to a scary extent. <laughs> and that's one thing I find incredibly alarming whenever I read about them is like, on one hand, there's the just blinding rage that I feel towards these people. <laughs> and on the other hand, there's the sense of like i don't know how many people just are born like this you know like people get pushed to this people get exploited and turned into this but it's something i I noticed a lot when i was starting to tour more was like i would go to places where 
there are stereotypes for whatever groups or whatever populations live in those areas. And oftentimes those stereotypes would be kind of true, but those people would also show me the utmost kindness, even though I was like some skinny little Yankee guy, like, you know, just kind of like half the time I am not the picture of the kind of person who would be fitting in, let alone being treated well, given what I was taught growing up in like half of these places. And I, I can't think of one place where people did not treat me with complete kindness when I was in a jam and things like that. And that always kind of got me thinking that like a lot, cause then, you know, I would be friends with face on uh, Facebook or whatever with these people. And I would see like their beliefs or their, their philosophies and be like, Holy hell, how did I get out of that? And it kind of struck me as like, people don't hate that way inherently. Like they're, on a team. They're just excited to be on a team or half the time it's like LARPing, you know, they just go out and they get to wear a vest and dance around with a gun and like, feel like they're a part of something. Like I get how that would appeal to somebody who's just like, God damn it. I want to be something in this world. Like I completely understand how that would impact you. And it sucks that that is the team that's incredibly good at doing it. So I feel like it's really important to understand how these mechanisms work, why people need them so badly, and how to outfox them. Because they're going to keep exploiting this same itch that we have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, it, you know, what's interesting, too, is that if you if you look historically, like, I think there have been moments in which the left was good at that. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure there are I'm sure there are countless examples. But the one that comes to mind, because it was it was something I studied, were like, anarchists in the turn of the 20th century and like the U S and places like Argentina, like they operated through like cultural clubs and things like that. So like there would be clubs for people of like Italian descent or like Jewish communities and things like that. And they would, they would operate within those spaces. They would like host picnics. They would do like, they would do these, these things that had like a social aspect to them. And then they'd also like be like, and we're going to have like these speakers here. Um, but like, you're going to come, you're going to bring your kids. We're all going to hang out, out outside. We're going to like socialize. We're going to feel like we're part of a community and we're going to mm. build that community around certain or integrate certain ideals within that community as well, or use it as a space to like say, Hey, also, I know most of you work in these factories. It's not okay that you're being paid and treated this way. And like, in fact, capitalism as a whole is really bad for you let's do something to change that together as part of this, mm. you know, yeah. this community that now already has, has connections. So, and I'm sure I, I would guarantee, I mean, I know like, for instance, the Black Panthers created like, like the free breakfast programs and things like that, where it was like, they're building community, they're doing, they're serving and meeting needs and making people feel things aside from just like, we're giving you information about why things are bad, right? Like they're, yeah. they're doing concrete things to build up those communities so that when it's time to like act in solidarity with one another, like people were, I think a lot more invested. And so I, th I think that's also like a nice piece is like, we can even look as historians and say, oh yeah, this piece we're missing now, we've actually done this before. Like we can look back yeah. and see like some of the examples where we've done it before. Um, yeah. So it fills in gaps, but again, it's like, you gotta be looking in the right places. And when that, yeah. when that history is silenced to you, it's, it's a lot more work. So if you zoom way out, do you think, are we obligated to understand 
our history or to care about our history. It's like, it sure is nice when we do, but, <laughs> but are we obligated? Like if somebody had a complete, just fundamental apathy that they felt towards this subject and, and just had lived their life in such a way, are they wrong or is it just, would it just be really nice if they thought differently? I, I would like to believe that we're obligated to care about one another as human beings. Yeah. Mm. Like, I feel like if we're going to take a stance or like a moral or ethical stance on something, it's like, we should care about each other collectively, right? Like not just in, in an individual sense, like we should care about human beings as a whole. Mm. And if you care about human beings as a whole, then you probably are starting to question why some human beings are treated with such violence and oppression while others seem to be able to walk through their lives with such a degree of privilege and never having to experience that. And if you're wondering, if you're asking those questions, like if you're looking at the world and seeing that and care about it, then I think you inherently care about history, right? Like you're going to ask the question like, but why, why did this happen? Okay. Yeah. Oh, but why did that happen? And you know, you start going down that rabbit hole. And yeah. so that history, instead of being a narrative of the past, History is, once again, just a set of tools, right? The ability mm -hmm. to inquire, why did something happen? The ability to look back and kind of come up with some understanding of where we've gotten to now, rather than like, well, I care about history because I really, I think it's interesting to learn about the past, right? Which is like <laughs> what I think was like the people, teachers tried to ingrain in us. Like, it's neat to learn about the past and, <laughs> and be proud of your country. No, it's like, this is, we understand how to look to the past to understand the things that are like incredibly frustrating and, and heartbreaking about the world that we live in today. Mm, yeah. And I mean, I get that stance on it too, because like for me, I'm not a history buff necessarily. There are some points in history, some periods of the past that are aesthetically appealing to me. Like um, I'd love, like I hate everything about the ideology behind Puritan culture but I love learning about it because there's something aesthetically appealing to it. I guess it's not just aesthetically because like that's so much of where purity culture comes from, you know, and that was certainly something affecting my life growing up. And as a segue, um, we were talking about, you know, the, the alt-right and the leftists and, and, and how they clash and everything. And um, so speaking of purity culture, I spent a good chunk of the last few years wondering why I have this sort of fear of community. And Matt and I have been over this a, a bunch, but I finally landed on the reason, and it took me a while to put it into words, but the reason was I spent my entire adult life trying to prove to indoctrinated people that I have morals too, or that my values are valid as well. Mm. And I have to imagine that Basically, everybody in any one of those groups feels the same way, just feels invalidated by another group. And there are examples of that when it's even hard to name an oppressor or a victim, or it can be hard to name, you know, who is in the right and who is in the wrong. And like, who is, are, are we in the wrong because we don't make space for others? Or are we in the wrong because we don't see that we are the oppressors or that like we don't see that we are a part of a supremacy culture or something like that. So I guess what we haven't gotten into too much yet is that like indoctrination is itself something that exists because of these 
elements of the historical past that we're that we're talking about. Like people organize into groups and that sometimes means that they hold ideologies that don't make space for others. And that means that they hold beliefs and rituals and traditions that are ex exclusionary. And I think that that is, if nothing else, the root of kind of how I started thinking about this topic is that it's very easy to feel excluded when history has not created a, and, and not that history has, is sentient, but like um, <laughs> when there has not in the past been created a system that you feel comfortable identifying within. Yeah. This is where it gets really, really complex. And some of the work gets really complex, right? Is that like we as human beings, like you said, are like, organized into all these different groups, like those groups can be at odds with one another, um, especially, you know, considering the social, socially constructed power systems around things like gender, religion, race, class, et cetera, right? I, I guess what I always come to is I, I, I think that there can be real power in identity, right? Um, yeah. That like, this is something that can be incredibly important to people like we you know like I was saying before like I was I was studying these anarchists in Argentina um who were like anti-nationalist right but are also finding some sort of strength in being like an immigrant in another country and saying like hey you know what we're all Italians like we've got this in common or we're all we're all Jewish immigrants who came here because of like these conditions in Eastern Europe at the time right and there was real strength in finding your community in that way and simultaneously like they knew like national identities are like like in according to our ideology inherently a bad thing and how do you protect the good piece i think i think this is like a question and not an answer it's like how do you protect the good pieces of identity mm -hmm. those things that provide people with strength and community and just, just make them feel a part of something um good or or that like have like positive ideals and like ethical stances within those within those identity groups or things like that how do you take the good and also actively challenge the places where they're doing harm? And I think that's where it gets really, really complicated. And I think religion is a, a great example of that too, right? Like there is so much harm that can be done by like the most right-wing conservative forms of Christianity that are like attacking LGBTQ people and just like supporting the most like right-wing and oppressive parts of our, our government system and our, and our political system in the US. And at the same time, like I've seen, like there are examples in Latin America of liberation theology where these Catholics were incredibly invested in not just like thinking about sort of a better life in the afterlife, but they were like, look, poor people deserve to live. We're gonna fight for like poor and indigenous people in our communities and we're gonna come together and we're gonna read Christianity and, and the Bible through this lens of like socialism and social justice and yeah. like they were able to find you know so it's it's a really weird thing but it's like how do you how do you get people to see their identity in that in that framework right like where their identity is serving as a mechanism for connection with others and right. strength like in solidarity rather than an us versus them mentality which it's so easy to fall into right sure so it's not it's not an answer, but like it's like that's the question I feel like we need to grapple with.
So the group that I was talking about earlier is like kind of a progressive Christianity group that you don't need to really be religious in order to be a part of. It's just a very stimulating conversation when we get together and talk. And one of the things that I've been seeing a lot lately is this pushback against any sort of progressive ideology within a greater ideology. So like fundamental Christianity or fundamentalism within Christianity is seen as this anchor to the belief system. You know, like these are obviously because they're fundamentals. Uh, these are the fundamentals of our belief. And how dare you go beyond that? Like, how dare you try to read it through a different lens, through a socialist lens, through a revolutionary lens? And like, to me, I think the test of any good belief system is whether it can withstand more progressive being seen through more progressive lenses, like mm -hmm. being seen through non-oppressive and more egalitarian lenses. And it's like, to me, if, if Christianity can't withstand that, then that's kind of where I fell into this issue, was wondering, like, well, if, if it can't withstand that, do I want to be defined in the context of a religion that can't uphold the beliefs of its more progressive followers? Well, we touched on a similar thing during the episode we did about, um, was it about fundamentalism where we talked about like the Christian worldview versus the atheistic worldview versus how science fits into all of this, or maybe it was objective truth. We hit this a lot probably, <laughs> but um, I remember us talking about why, like how it's kind of interesting sometimes that something like spirituality or really any religion, not just Christianity, but a lot of religions can't coexist peacefully with science. Mm, yeah. Like science is, is, has taken on kind of its own identity in a very weirdly unified way. When in reality, it's, it's just a series of steps. It's just an approach. Yeah. It shouldn't be able to take on any identity because it hasn't arrived anywhere. So what the hell could you call it? How could you pin it down? If you have been able to pin it down, it's no longer really science. It's now fact or it's now history or something. So it's like, yeah, I, I totally agree that it's almost like you're putting your ideology or your philosophy or whatever into a, a wind tunnel or like a crash test or something, like just seeing what falls off. And I think there can be, it can be framed in such a way that that's an optimistic thing and not a terrifying thing, which is something that can foster security in that identity where you understand why, why you need it really and that that's okay and that that's valid. But every time it gets hit and every time you realize there's a vulnerability with it, you can look at it instead of saying, oh my God, we're being attacked. Look at it like, why did that piece just fall off? I wonder if I needed that or I wonder if that represents yeah. something I should think through more. But it's never presented that way because I think that fear that's attached to why you need that identity so badly just swamps everything. Like, Yeah, well, and the crux of my argument all along has been or whenever I'm talking about belief systems like that, you know, there has always been an evolution of thought. And why does it make any sense to declare that there was a terminus to that evolution that you now subscribe wholly to? Mm. And if there's anything that progresses beyond what you consider that to be that terminus, then you deny that it has any validity because it came after a certain point of time or because it came after you formed your beliefs. You know, and that goes along with the whole, like, what do we teach our, our students um, when they're young? And if they learn something contradictory later, but that is more truthful and more helpful for them to learn, 
then will they have a hard time absorbing that information? So it's almost like we must teach and must gain a capacity for more evolution in, in thought and evolution in, in understanding. And yeah. Yeah. Like there's a, there's a term for it and I can't, I can't remember if it's, it's, I don't remember if it's intellectual flexibility or something like that, but there's okay. a, there is a tool, a, a term within like education that, that talks to this specific thing that we're able to, that our thinking is flexible enough to take in new information, consider new points of view to evolve the way we're thinking about a certain, yeah. a certain topic. And I think our identities and these, like these various communities and, and things like that, it's, it's like crucial that we have that there um, rather than because they are at their core, they're, they're socially constructed, right? Like right. we have like nationalist identities because human beings made up countries. We have racial identities because human beings made up race. We have, I mean, if you're, if, you know, from my point of view, we have religious identities because human beings constructed religion, but it gets more complicated when you see something as an undeniable and concrete truth in terms of these things versus something that's flexible and discursive that people can like, that there are multiple perspectives on. But even, mm -hmm. even still, I think religious communities maintain some degree of flexibility, or at least there are like, that's why there are so many offshoots because people are debating still like what fits within this system of beliefs where can we expand it, et cetera. But I think, yeah, I think that it's crucial for us to to maintain that flexibility with any of these so that we can continue to challenge the parts of them that aren't actually helping, but are that are actually hurting people, right? Yeah. Like, so like the second, some aspect of your identity is being propped up by holding someone else down, oppressing someone or causing damage to other communities or excluding others, right? Like the second that that's happening, like we've, we've probably got a, a problem with, within that identity or within that system of identities that needs to be addressed and talked about. Um, and we can't do that if we don't have that like intellectual flexibility or whatever that, that term is. It's even kind of interesting to me that the idea of a social construction gets a bit of a, a bad rep these days. Like it gets kind of a pejorative connotation attached to it a lot of times because I, I think that tends to be restrictive. It makes people look at it as something that either you definitely don't want to say, like you definitely don't want to call your belief system or it's something no people don't want to poke at and talk about, you know, but it's like a lot of these things that we've socially constructed, I feel like we, we did for a reason at one time. And so much of it is getting back to that reason and thinking about the context. And did that reason make sense to them then? Does it still make sense to us now? A lot of times it won't, or at least not entirely. And it's like actual construction, like literal construction. I mean, sometimes a building will get ramshackle. Like it might've looked amazing when it was there initially, but now it's crap or it could be the Bauhaus thing where you have an idea that's beautiful and functional, or it could be extremely gaudy, but God help you if the wind blows by and the building comes, like, you know, actual construction, we don't bat an eye at it. We just say it's a fact of life, but we don't consider that we've constructed a lot of our intellectual reality as well and our spiritual reality and just our interpersonal realities for probably a lot of the same, or at least parallel reasons. Yeah. And it's not good or bad. It just 
shit falls apart you have to yeah. update things sometimes. because human beings made it and human beings are <laughs> yeah. imperfect right like like <laughs> yeah. democracy is a social construct like we as human beings came up with an idea that like we should have equal voice and like yeah in in our systems right and like i would say that's a, a pretty good social construct but also like has been completely like distorted in certain situations or like there like it varies based on how it's implemented right like yeah. direct democracy in which like all people have have a voice are working towards like consensus and things like that is much better than representational democracy where we're voting for like the most privileged members of our society to then make decisions about what happens to like the most oppressed communities like that you know mm, there yeah. it, it's variations and not yeah not all social constructs are bad they're just we it's it's good to acknowledge that we as human beings came up with these ideas because it gives us it actually gives us the power to say Cool. then we can also change them or improve upon them or make them better, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's where the agency comes back in and history is almost, it's just precedent. It's like picking through case law all of a sudden where you're just looking for examples of things you can use to get at an argument or you're looking for tools, you're just looking for whatever you need, really. It's all in there because we've done it a hundred thousand times before mm. since the birth of our species. So it's just, I think that that can get exciting at that point. And that's where, to me, you do have an obligation to understand or to at least care to some minor extent about this stuff just by virtue of the fact that you live in a society and we are constantly building and tearing down and rebuilding and reconsidering things through the course of our lives. And if you want to benefit from those things, you got to kind of know what's going on and, you know, know when things are getting, getting dicey. <laughs> I think that's a very important thing to, to do. Yeah. Know? Yeah, it, I just to me that's what opens it all up. That's what makes history important and makes it exciting and makes a lot of things that seem impossible, like a lot of things that sound like just things that other people do. Like even the idea, like before I went to like started college again recently, like the idea of just research, like people who make studies, it didn't even click to me that that's just something people can learn to do and then do. I was always growing up with the impression that like there are people who do this, like there are people who do studies. I'm never going to be a person who does studies. And it's there's as soon as I started to realize like, no, it's just you learn the APA format and you don't fuck up ethically and then you, you can have a study. <laughs> people can poke a million holes in it, but you can do these things and have this result. And like I started to think about how many other aspects of life that that applies to. And when you look at something like history or social justice that way, the, the entire world just becomes like a friggin' erector set. Like that's fun to me. Which is like the hope, right? Like that is like my dream that students are walking away with that understanding of history. Like, oh, cool. Now I know how to look at the past, be like, oh, here's some things that didn't go right. Look at these other examples that give me ideas about what we could do, what is possible, right? Um, yeah. And I think that's where, it, yeah, it does become really beautiful. <laughs> and like I said, really liberatory. And there's a huge responsibility too. And that's... Yeah, you know, that's where it's like, that's where I feel like it can become, it can circle back around to being a burden again, you know, like it can <laughs> kind of be like, like, oh shit, well now we're, now we're driving. Like, even though we always were, it's like, you sort of have that realization that like somebody's taken off whatever imaginary cruise control you had on human existence and you're like, oh, I got to do something now. But that, yeah, that's, that should be exciting. That should be, it doesn't have to be all of human existence. Just do what's going on in your corner and. Try yeah. not to blow it. <laughs> right. And like, if we can, you know, if we can bring joy into that process too, that's, I think that's one of the things it does. I think it does that work can feel burdensome and it can feel scary. 
Mm. And that's where it, it like circles back to how are we, how are we bringing people into these movements? How are we bringing people into these ideas? And like, what are we get? What are they getting out of it? How do we mm-hmm. make these joyful moments and not like just completely terrifying or like overwhelming moments where it's like, okay, now we know we can do something, but what is it? And why does this feel so awful? Like, how does it feel like a moment of, of joy and community that we're like, we're building something better together and this feels good, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you think there's ever a danger of over-intellectualizing these things or, or at least having these things like social change or, or just the study of anything, having it become too, like, wholly intellectual? Absolutely. I mean, when you think about, you know, some of the ways people have spent their, their whole lives, like, researching things like Marxism and stuff, and, they've, you know, the, the language in a lot of Marxist texts, while it's geared at making, like, dismantling systems of class, it's like, the language itself can be incredibly classist, right? And that like, you have <laughs> yeah. to have like a PhD to understand what is being said, or like you spend all of your free time reading it and it can be incredibly inaccessible. Um, so I think it's good that we think really hard about this stuff. Like this, this stuff matters and we want to put a lot of thought into it and we want to, you know, we want to continue doing that work, but at the same time, like we want it to serve a purpose beyond like publishing books. Like those books should be published and theory should be written in service of doing the work that we're talking about, actually creating that different world. And when the publishing or the the theorizing becomes the end itself, right? Mm. Then I think you have an issue. Then it's empty. Yeah. 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 I run into that struggle pretty often because even as I'm talking about advocating for change, often the most that I do to contribute to that is write a fucking folk song about it. So... <laughs> And if that reaches people and it starts discourse, then that's wonderful. And that is like most days of my life, the most that I can ever hope to achieve, um, the most positive change I can ever hope to enact is that I help to start discourses about why change is necessary. But I'm never actually sure how to approach it other than artistically. But I think, I think artistically, like art is one of those things that brings people joy. Yeah. And it can build community. And yeah. you know what I mean? And like, I think we've we've all seen through like DIY music communities that like you actually can like simultaneously like create a space for discourse and then bring ideas into that space. Right. To where it's and I, and I think I mean, I think publishing and writing and doing any of this work can serve that means as well. And I don't know, you know, I think that line between between, you know, that line can get really fuzzy as to whether or not you're just doing something that's like very individualistic versus doing something that actually has deeper purpose. But I'd like to believe, I I mean, as a musician myself too, who also likes to write and sing about social justice issues or like capitalism, things like that. I, I want to believe that actively talking about those things and simultaneously creating spaces where we can come together through things that we love and appreciate yeah. like music like that is a step it, a very small one probably mm-hmm. but it's a step in the right direction right because you're actually building community yeah. and like disseminating those ideas in a way that's maybe accessible or that like is you know doesn't feel necessarily burdensome um so 
Yeah, and I like that because like songwriting or writing an essay, whatever, anything that can be a purely intellectual pursuit can also be purely in vain. And I think like a good point to make is if you're writing a folk song about social change, it says a lot where you're going to perform that song. Are you going to perform that song in a venue where stasis is not challenged? Are you going to perform that song in a a DIY venue. And not to say that one is great and one is horrible, but if you bring that piece of art to a community that is more likely to engage in the discourse that you're trying to inspire, you know, and if that community, if what is being created in that community is a culture that is galvanized toward progressive change, then that would be the, the better action to take. So like, the action is where is that song going to be played or where is that writing going to be published or who is it going to reach? And is there going to be a community around the consumption of that? And I think even like, it goes back to like Matt's point earlier of like, you know, like thinking about praxis and like, well, what, what strategies are we implementing in what situations and knowing how to do that? Right. Like you have these two different scenarios, right. One where you're maybe playing to a, community of, of more like-minded people who want to take that and, you know, take those ideas and run with them. How are you talking about or presenting this material in that situation versus the other one, right? Like, and I think there's, there's probably strategy and logic behind how you engage in these different situations even. And I think that also, like, even as musicians, like, how are we, how are we considering our actions through this, like, lens of praxis? Like, what do we, what's the outcome we want? What happens when we try this thing, when we reflect on it, like, were we successful in any way? What could we do to improve it next time? Right. And that actually gives us a way of thinking through, like, on a deeper level, like, why are we doing this and what do we hope to, you know, what do we hope to achieve? And like, how can we, how can we get at that better next time? Yeah. But then also, if you're presenting that work to a group of like-minded people, whose minds are you changing? And so it's also then important to consider are you just kind of engaging in like the tribal identity that you know, you know, are you sticking with your crowd who agrees with you anyway, or are you out there trying to change minds? Right. Or are you, are you building community and then reminding that community that at the forefront of our community should be these ideals that we should be talking about them here and outside of here. Or how are you like, are you saying now we've got a community what's the next step for our community in these struggles, right? Mm. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of ways because I, yeah, I, I, I think like, I know I fall in the trap of like, I'm saying this thing at a show and like, everyone agrees with me, good, we're doing something good versus like, how do I like, how do I now like go, go a next step with this? Um, yeah. I think that it, it's really hard and I, and I don't have any answers to, to how we do that really. But I think that having the conversation and like, thinking about like, how do we engage these spaces depend like based on what kind of space it is, what strategies do we use? Why would those strategies be useful depending on like what our end goal is? Like having those, Mm -hmm. having those questions on our mind is, is a step in the right direction. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's just, it's the, I heard this thing from a Thomas Sowell book the other day. And he was saying that one of the biggest dangers with a lot of intellectual pursuits and especially progressive one specifically in in the case of what he was writing about was that there's no culpability because if 
an intellectual or a scholar writes something and it's considered correct or it's considered forward thinking, it gets admitted to popular thought or to intellectual thought or whatever, and it just continues on its life. And if it is shot down, it, it's just kind of shot down while it's still an idea, like it's never considered a real thing. And mm. he contrasted that with like, if a politician put forward a law that was just considered to be ubiquitously fucked up, their career would end, the law would get shot. I mean, apparently not anymore, but at the time of this writing, <laughs> their career would end, the law would get shot down. Like actual things would happen in the world to reflect the fact that that law was terrible. And if it was a good law, the same would happen on the other side where progress would would be made in theory and you know things would change. So I, I think that self-inquiry serves as culpability in these cases. Like if you're kind of putting that burden on yourself to be like, am I doing this for the reasons that I think I'm doing it for? And is this actually, if I want to cause change, is this causing the right change in the right place at the right time? Or if you're doing it purely for, you know, for hedonism or for just for community building or, or just to create beauty and you just want the aesthetics to be the thing that shows through. Are you okay with that? Is that what you want to do? If so, you know, go ahead, keep doing that. If not, evaluate why you're leaning on that aspect of it. And maybe are you afraid to go in as the idea not fully baked? Like, I think that's the important thing for anything, for any profession, really, not even just the arts or the, um, you know, writing or social sciences or anything like that. It's really, anyone can get sucked into vices, for lack of a better term, like, you can become a, a junkie for adrenaline in a lot of more action-oriented professions and think you're a hero and in reality you're just, that's what you do, you know? It's the idea yeah. of being like a soldier for a national cause versus being a mercenary. Like you're doing the same thing. You could both do good, you could both do bad, but are you doing it because you don't really want to try meth yet? <laughs> or are you doing it because you believe in something? Both are, are valid to me, but I think that self-culpability is, is crucial because it keeps you at least owning your actions or inactions. And that's our show. As always, Black Market Therapy is a Dead and Mellow production. And to stay in touch with us, you can follow Black Market Therapy and Dead and Mellow Records on social media. We'd like to thank Adam Reed for being such a great guest. And once again, all of the music cues for this episode were selected from his catalog. So if you like what you heard, make sure to check out Adam Reed and the Inbetweens, as well as his partner Hannah's band, Nanny, which Adam is also in. And we'll be back in two weeks to talk about the connection between mind and body. Until then. <laughs> <laughs>